The Athletic. Another ball into the box, and this time they get the equaliser. Guardiola was forwards. City are saying there was a push. The Macarosa side are on terms in Leipzig. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. Today, we're going to take a look at what might be called Red Bull football, as popularised by teams such as Red Bull Salzburg, New York Red Bulls and Rasenballsport Leipzig. Today, we're going to talk about the tactics of this footballing conglomerate rather than recruitment, scouting and and other interesting and important parts of the multi-club group's philosophy. And specifically, we're going to see how well it has travelled into the Premier League, where the group itself may not own a club, but there have been a few dalliances with a version of its tactical approach and some of its key alumni as well. To do all that with me, bringing the energy today, Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. Giving us a boost, as always, Mark Kerry. Hello, Ali. And the podcast monster, Liam Tharm. Hello. Other energy drinks are available. <laughs> Let's set the tone here, guys. I think we should do it in quite an aggressive, front-footed manner in keeping with what we're talking about. Michael, what is, as you understand it, what we're going to call henceforth RB football? Yeah, I mean, I think we should take a wide look at this and say that it's essentially a marketing strategy. I mean, Red Bull are a marketing company. They don't manufacture the drink. They essentially are a media company, which are just there to sell the drink. I won't go into the details of that because it's not what we're talking about today, but it's kind of an interesting structure of the company. And they've been kind of relentless advertisers and relentlessly involved in, relentless is probably the wrong word, actually, because that's another (laughs) industry. But, uh, you know, there's a time, for example, where there was 10 Formula One teams and Red Bull owned two of them, which is quite incredible, really, for Formula One. So they're, they're clearly keen to get into sports. And they've traditionally been involved in kind of extreme sports and basically just like young people doing cool things. And I think what they've done with football is they have kind of used the style of football to further their marketing campaign. I mean, it's an energy drink. And what is the football all about? It's about very young players running around lots, doing lots of energetic uh, things. So they've they've kind of used football philosophy as an extension of their advertising, which is novel, I think, but seems to have been broadly successful because here we are doing a podcast saying what is the Red Bull philosophy, which is precisely what they would want, I imagine. My favourite part about this is their tagline of it gives you wings and their style very ironically doesn't use the wings. It's yes. everything down the middle. Very good. Um, that might be my best contribution to this this whole pod. So uh, there we go. Well, talking about what pops into my head is 4-2-2-2 as a broad formation. As we know, these days in and out of possession, things look very different at times. But what has been popularised as a 4-2-2-2, Liam, how would you define and recognise RB football now that we've had the, the lesson on on the history of it. Yeah, linking to the energy part, it's it's very chaotic. It probably goes to stand for what a lot of modern teams and clubs and, and coaches, I think, don't want, which is chaos and, um, you know, being reactive and, and having a very sort of almost physically dominant game, more so than being sort of technically um, superior to teams. You're looking at a lot of high intensity running, um, pressing, counter pressing, effectively caring about the most important part of the pitch being the middle part, um, playing those vertical passes and those long, you know, the furthest forward pass you can play, trying to play that um, and really sort of trying to carve teams apart that way. And yeah, it's going to create sort of extremities at both ends of the spectrum of you will give up big chances because players will be pulled across, you Mm. are going to vacate space, but it's in the hope that you make more big chances that you can see because you're going to be trying to, you know, pick teams apart and get close to their goal. This isn't to pick you up on a single word that you used there, Liam, because it was very insightful. But one of the the tactical principles I read about um, Ralph Rangnick is that he says to act and don't react. So you said about being reactive, but it's kind of not to let the, the opposition dictate what's going on. It's all about you even though it looks kind of chaotic, it's kind of the controlled chaos and being on the front foot, but in a way that you are dictating where things go rather than necessarily being reacted. But I completely agree with your point that it is all about that aggression, that chaos, if not organized chaos, which is a bit of a juxtaposing sentence, then planned chaos. Mm-hmm. And and in your head, Liam, when you conjure up RB football, who are the most famous successful sides to play in this style and, and to make it popular? 
Yeah, well, we're seeing that with Leipzig now, right? Um, and I think the whole reason why their system has success is because, I know we're not here to chat about recruitment, but with the likes of Salzburg as well, you've got different levels where you can develop players through, you can move them on. I know that they quite explicitly say that like they're not feeder clubs, but they have established pathways where players can move on when they get better. Um, and, you know, these then make effective good breeding grounds and, I don't know too much about the Austrian Bundesliga, but in Germany, it's a league that suits more transitional football anyway. Um, they've quite clearly targeted where they're going to you know, exploit and what's going to suit their approach best. Some big names in terms of players uh, playing uh, for some of the biggest clubs in, in Europe that have, have come through, if you like, uh, the Red Bull system in, in one or, or multiple of its clubs, uh, the, the likes of Sadio Mane, of course, uh, Naby Keita, Upper Meccano, um, and others more recently, such as Tyler Adams, Enoch Mwepu, Adeyemi now at, at uh, Dortmund, and of course Erling Haaland as well, who, who played for Salzburg for a short period. What, as you understand it, makes a typical or a good RB player, Liam? I think it's the athleticism, um, being an energetic player, but often as some of the top players in terms of their top speeds, uh, their ability to, of course, you know, play a long period um, in that specific style. I think there's a lot of room for individuality as well, though, that you're getting quite a wide variety of players. You're looking at someone like Dominic Schoberslai, who is, you know, renowned for being sort of a good ball striker, but maybe you've got players that are really good in specific moments and maybe struggle more of a sort of a 90-minute period. Um, but I think that scope is growing wider and wider, the better and more successful that they get, because obviously now that they're pushing up towards a Leipzig, in particular the top of the Bundesliga, I guess you need to be more adaptive. And we're seeing that now as Harlem moves across the city as a prime example of sometimes you get this type of player, you need to sort of change your style around a bit more. And in terms of the, the coaching tree, if you like, uh, Michael, Ralph Ranick, the father or the grandfather, I'm not sure which one would be more appropriate there, of, of this style of football. Um, who else is, is in the mix here? Who, who are the names that spring to mind manager-wise? Well, I guess in Premier League terms, Ralph Hasenhutl and Jesse Marsh would be uh, two managers who've managed at Leipzig. Um, and I guess the two we're most familiar with this season, mm. even though uh, both of them have lost their jobs in the uh, last few months. Uh, and Leipzig themselves have employed in recent years Domenico Tedesco and, and Julian Nagelsmann as well. Are, are these cut and dried RB managers or, or are they something a little bit different? Is there some sort of evolution of the style over in Germany? Well, that's what I thought was interesting because those two names that you mentioned are kind of a move away from what we would consider typical RB play in terms of that verticality. I think there's an element of maybe it kind of going in cycles in that the way that RB Leipzig certainly played was very front foot, very aggressive, all those things, which can be kind of fallible in the sense that the opponent can either play over the press and maybe go long sometimes or sit in a deep block and they almost say, well, you want to play a transitional game. We're not going to allow you to do that. So now what have you got? So sometimes, well, for those examples with Nagelsmann and Tedesco, they were managers who were able to maybe train, build up a little bit more and try to improve the each player's ability kind of on the ball or structurally. And it was to varying degrees of success. I think Tedesco, they they won the, the Pokal Cup um, off the back of it, but he was only there, I think, less than a year. Um, Nagelsmann, we know, is a very good manager, doing very well at the moment, maybe less so at the, the immediate short term. But there was a bit of a cycle to say that, okay, this is the best way that's going to work, but we have to be kind of flexible enough to be good on the ball and not just rely on a kind of a one-dimensional transitional play. So that's why those sort of managers came in. I think Tedesco is quite interesting because he's recently been appointed as Roberto Martinez's successor at Belgium. And uh, you don't really think of this style succeeding in international football too much. So I'm interested to see how that will go. Mm. What about in European football um, guys? Leipzig and Salzburg have been fixtures in the in the Champions League. Um, we talked about their success domestically and, and how the certain league's style fits success for, for this RB style. What about in European football, Michael? How would you say that they've fared? And when you watch those games tactically with Leipzig and Salzburg, do you get the sense that this is a, a good style to translate to the, the more varied European stage? Reasonably well. I mean, Leipzig had that run in 2020, got to the semis. Um, aside from that, I kind of just think of them as a kind of fringe team, really. I never really fancy them to go that far in Europe, but they, they are often involved in some interesting tactical battles. Um, I actually didn't see the game last night, but I gather that that clash with uh, Manchester City was a pretty good one. Yeah, well, I was going to say Guardiola said how much that his team just can't beat Leipzig for for pace. They're so good on the transition that other than, I think he said, Erling Haaland and Kyle Walker, they're just not going to be able to have someone that's going to match that. Um, 
that transitional play and that speed and that aggression. So they had to play in a slightly different way. But I think the the way that typical RB teams play in Leipzig, uh, we're talking about at the moment, play probably lends itself a little bit more to knockout football or cup football where there's kind of an element of chaos, um, which is maybe, as we've spoken about before, I think the maybe the downfall of a Pep Guardiola side at Manchester City where he's looking for that control. And sometimes in a knockout game, certain things that you just can't account for, which is chaotic, mm. which lends itself to more of the RB style than the necessarily that controlled style. Yeah, Pep was really interesting last night with his, his team selection. He had both Mares uh, and Carl Walker playing, which on paper seems quite normal, but he was very much playing Mares inside and effectively a number 10 role and really had Walker out wide on the right, um, which looked initially to probably counter Timo Werner's pace in behind. As it was, City had 74% of the ball in the first half, but then 49% in the second, and it, it really sort of switched. And they really started to play in behind City more, uh, particularly down that right side when Walker would be high. Um, and they struggled really sort of defending the turnovers and the goal they concede actually comes from a corner uh, on that side on Leipzig's left down City's right um, because they, they just couldn't deal with the threat and when Christopher Nkunku came on who again is another really talented um, one of the sort of the young players that, that they bring through um, another of these sort of two-footed energetic technical dynamic players he came on down that left and suddenly really opened things up a lot more um, so I think to show that switch again and not just as Mark says you know profile these teams as always being vertical you know counter-attacking especially when you get into later rounds in Europe you can have to show more different attacking faces. Hello there, my name's Taylor Payne, host of The Athletic's dedicated Newcastle United podcast, Pon on the Tyne. It's a rather big week for the Magpies with an actual cup final this Sunday and a chance to end our 68-year wait for silverware. Yes, 68 whole years. Join myself, George Coggan, Chris Roth and Jacob Whitehead as we build up to that showdown at Wembley. And there'll be an extra special show next week, bringing you all the sounds, sights, emotions and smells from what we hope will be a weekend we'll never forget. Just search for Pod on the Tine on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So popular and often extreme tactical styles uh, tend to be copied or interpreted and they tend to, to travel across Europe, uh, which brings us to the Premier League and the discussion of, of RB-style football in the Premier League. Two former RB Leipzig managers have been appointed permanently into the Premier League uh, in the last half a decade. Ralph Hassenhüttl at Southampton and Jesse Marsh at Leeds. Uh, both of them sacked recently. The two teams playing against each other this weekend. Um, and albeit Southampton have already sacked the manager that they replaced Ralph Hassenhüttl with, Leeds have just appointed a manager to replace Jesse Marsh with, and that's Javi Grathia. So we'll have a chat about whether these teams and these clubs seem to have abandoned this style or whether it's something that they're trying to adapt and interpret. But but broadly, Michael, are these the two teams, Marsh's Leeds and Hassenhüttl Southampton, that have most personified RB tactics in the Premier League? Yeah, I mean, I think Jesse Marsh was brought in to be similar to Bielsa in terms of really high energy, high tempo style of play. I must say, broadly speaking, I quite enjoyed some of Leeds games just because they were so eventful but I, I just thought they often fell down on the basics I remember they lost 5-2 to Brentford earlier this season and the centre-backs it was just the worst defending you'll see in the Premier League all season um, and, and, Marsh and was that because they were being asked to defend so much space and they did not handle that very well well Marsh was very wedded to his philosophy there was a game where they beat Bournemouth 4-3 earlier this season and obviously they conceded three goals and Marsh was very much like we conceded the three goals because we didn't press intensely enough. You know, there's never, uh, you know, any questioning whatsoever of whether the philosophy is the right thing to do. It's always just we didn't do the philosophy well enough, which I, I think sometimes can be a slightly dangerous road to go down. The Southampton thing's interesting because, again, I think Hasenhutl does fit the, the style of football that was played by his predecessors. But, I mean, it, it came in with Pochettino, really, and then and Ronald Koeman actually improved the team. And they weren't, obviously, from this particular uh, background and I think it's worth touching on Nathan Jones because he's become a little bit of a you know figure of fun because of his press conference and stuff but that press conference that um, everyone kind of found really funny and it was quite funny to be fair but if you look at what he says compromise on a few little things to be honest with you but no more because at the end of the day it's it's I've been very successful and I've been very successful playing a real fluent style real fluent style and then 
tried to implement that at Stoke and it didn't because of certain things. Then I came back to Luton, we were a real aggressive front-footed side. Statistically, there weren't many better than me around Europe in terms for aggression, clean sheets, defending your box, balls in the box, XG, all those things. And then we he were... goes on and on. But he was basically saying, I've been brought in because my style of football was really aggressive without the ball, really positive, really high tempo. And I found that, he basically goes on to say, I found that difficult to do because of the Premier League, because of a new club, etc. So I'm not sure they have abandoned it. I, and I don't think it started, I mean, it clearly didn't start from Hosenhutl. He was just passing through as one of a, you know, a string of managers, really, who uh, who plays this high energy of football that Southampton broadly have played for about a decade now. So, so between the two clubs, you would suggest that Southampton are more into it than Leeds, who, who perhaps saw it as an obvious bridge from Bielsa to next manager, given how uh, extreme Bielsa was. It, it would have been crazy to go completely down another path. Is that what you're saying? A little bit. I mean, I would argue that both those uh, clubs' philosophies were changed very much by managers with a sim- similar philosophy, uh, leads by Bielsa, and of course Southampton by Pochettino, who'd worked under Bielsa in the late 80s, yeah, early I'm 90s sure. in Argentina. The story of Bielsa going to visit Poch when he was a kid and mm. yeah. uh, measuring his, the length of his legs or something quite <laughs> unusual like right. that. But yeah, I mean, that's where, that's where this kind of, these clubs philosophy comes from. And I think obviously the managers who've been at the RB clubs are the kind of, you know, modern, young, trendy equivalents of, of those managers. There's also a lot of talk now about Southampton being quite a data-driven team. I believe Rasmus Ankerson's part of their ownership or sort of their hierarchy of course as a you know had success at Brentford a very data-driven person um, and I'd argue that an RB sort of style or this vertical approach is probably one of the easier ones to measure because you can look at things like direct speed when you play upfield um, through balls you're able to look at the progression of stuff quite well um, it probably does lend itself to being you know more measured and maybe a bit more insightful than just sort of things like passes or possession um, so I, I guess in that regard and um, as Nathan Jones did actually reference some of the statistics, I'd, I'd love to know what his aggression statistic is, uh, whether he's just kicking people and fouls or something more a bit more sophisticated like PPDA. Well, actually, on the note of PPDA, I was looking at Southampton's pressing intensity over time, looking at a 10-game rolling average. And since 2019-20 at least, it's remarkably consistent of just how much they do stick with that high pressing intensity. It's somewhere between 10 and 15 in terms of the PPDA. And as we know, the lower the number, the higher the pressing intensity. And they've been in the top third, top five of the, the 20 Premier League teams um, for the past three or four seasons. So it shows that at least in pressing intensity and kind of the fundamental part of maybe the RB way um, has certainly been there. It was only in the the start of this season, which was sort of the start of Harsen Huttel's uh, demise. Obviously, you got uh, the sack off the back of that is when it kind of really dropped off, uh, I'd say. But it was remarkably consistent over a number of seasons. Right. But as a whole package, the team definitely did drop off. So I guess what I'm wondering is, do, can we pinpoint why, when it worked under Hassan Huttel, it being their general approach, not just pressing, why did it work then and what stopped working? What happened to uh, to kickstart Southampton's demise? It's a tough question. I think they kind of just lost a little bit of their identity and I don't really think they had much of an approach with the ball. So if you look at the statistics from this season, there's this statistic that Opta used called direct speed, which is basically how quickly you work the ball forward. So on that list, Leeds were first atop. They they got the ball forward the quickest. Southampton were down in 13th. So I just got the sense that they... They generally had a plan without the ball, though I think the pressing dropped off as well in the last couple of seasons. But they, they just got a little bit lost. I don't really know what their their game plan was. Uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they're quite weird statistics about aerial duels. They had the most won and the most lost in the Premier League. They were playing a lot of long balls to strikers, so I don't think really, you know, thrived on that style of football. But I think it's worth pointing out that when he got sacked, Hasenhutl was the fourth longest serving manager of a Premier League club after Guardiola, Klopp and Thomas Frank. And I think sometimes now we just have to accept that maybe that's the shelf life for a lot of managers. And you can do a pretty good job for three years and it goes wrong in your last half season and you remembered as, you know, it kind of spiralled out of control. But it's not a great squad, Southampton. They've never had a great squad. They, they It's not the type of squad they had under Pochettino and Koeman where they had loads of players who were poached by, you know, the big six clubs. There's not many big uh, big six clubs 
sniffing around these players because they're just not that good, really. And I, I, I don't think Hasenhutl really failed in the end. I mean, the, the side was was dipping in form, but overall, I think I'd say he, he did a, a pretty good job, to be honest. It sounds almost like the talking about what you might describe as the gravitational pull of the Premier League, where even just staying as the 10th or 11th best team in the league while doing things in a, in a way that you might describe as semi-organic is, is incredibly difficult over a long period of time. And also, I mean, if you take aside the, the big six clubs, everyone ends up scrapping against relegation at one point or yeah. another now. I mean, Everton are in a relegation fight. I think after them, the next two longest serving Premier League clubs are West Ham and Southampton who've been threatened this season. So it's just a, it's a revolving door of, you know, every two or three years, these clubs are, are going to be fighting against relegation. Obviously, the natural solution is that to change a manager. But I think Ralph, Ralph Hasenhutl might get another decent job, maybe a Bundesliga club next time. I think, I think he did all right, really. It's interesting what Michael said about Southampton's squad and not being obviously married up to the style of play that we're talking about here. And of course, if you go back to the RB group, recruitment and their their network on that front and the way that they scout, the way that they buy players, the way that they move players around and the way that they sell players is such an important part of that system. Yeah, I mean, you look at Marsh bringing across the likes of Brandon Aronson and, and Tyler Adams, players that he's worked with before that have been part of those sort of systems. So for Southampton to not have that, I think, and have players that when you look at their squad list, I don't think hugely suit um, tons of transitional football. I think maybe Adam Armstrong is a standout in that, but um, applying that to players that are maybe top-end championship um, becomes really difficult. The, the long and the short of it is, really, I think they, they didn't replace Danny Ings, um, right. scoring 22 goals in 2019-20. No one else had more than five. That's not a problem because if you've got a 20-plus goal a season striker in the bottom half, you've done incredibly well for yourself. But... Um, no, I think to sort of have that key attacking outlet um, gone to then not have the players around him. I mean, he played alongside Shane Long quite a lot that season. Same with Che Adams and Long in particular, I think, is someone that we associate as a really willing runner. Um, you know, not going to score a lot or assist a lot, but will make, make the runs for another striker to then receive passes. So these things have a shelf life and... I think it's the intensity that then maybe means they fall down at the end of a season. We've seen them burn out at times and maybe that's harder to do currently in a season that's so condensed where players are probably a lot more tired and the intensity of this is, is difficult to do. Um, but I just think there's a, yeah, there's a time where all, and it's a boring answer, there's a time where sort of all things come to an end. But I, I don't think these teams in, in Southampton um, and Leeds are maybe underperforming. I think they're probably at roundabouts where they should be. I imagine if you work out the budget or the the, uh, the money they have, they're probably, yeah, uh, about right. I think just staying on recruitment for a second, market. I think it's generally accepted that the teams that are most sturdy in terms of, of recruitment, both in terms of players and, and in terms of changing managers and maintaining a certain level are the ones who are very together and have an overarching belief and, and don't waver from it and also execute well within that. And I, I it strikes me, you know, I was reading a piece by Ryan O'Hanlon uh, about the RB group. You know, the tactics are just one part of it. The managers who have come and gone have have arguably been a smaller part of the club's success than a lot of other uh, clubs who who can be very wedded to the the success or otherwise of one manager, and, and it can kind of lurch from one manager to the next. And you know, Ryan wrote that the the top down identity is perhaps the main driver behind the club's success. Now, that's not a particularly sexy thing to talk about, but it's probably relevant here in the sense that. We're talking about Leeds having hired Jesse Marsh and Southampton having hired Ralph Hassenhuttle. They're unlikely to be able to recreate everything that RB do just by hiring some former managers because the whole point is they are a cog in the machine, not the machine itself. So, you know, I'm not, I don't think we're all just saying they just try to copy RB, by the way. But, you know, that is an important point to make. It's like trying to recreate a very complicated recipe, but with only half of the ingredients. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I think that's why it's useful to have the the multi-club model and RB have it, but there's others. The City Group obviously have it, Manchester City, and there's there's many others around Europe and around the world that have that, as you say, that top-down approach. And it's no coincidence that you can kind of plug and play at the manager level and at the player level as well to have that pathway going from, from Salzburg to Leipzig, in this case, um, sometimes to the Premier League, etc., that... There's, there's a very, very aligned way of, of thinking, aligned way of playing, um, and it, it certainly works as a, as a model, despite people's thoughts on the, the wider point of 
Red Bull in general from a marketing campaign, they they do have a really good eye for talent. They're able to transfer them from in a steady way as well, right? There's not too many players who go from from Salzburg to the Premier League, for example. I know that Aronson is an exception of that as one example, but to to have that clear pathway of incrementally improving the the quality of the league as the player goes up to become the player that they are, um, I think is a, is a very clear, aligned way of thinking. One defence I'll make for, for Leeds and Marsh in particular, speaking on recruitment, is that they didn't really bring in a quality left back. Um, they've been playing Pascal Stroik there, who I see as a centre back and definitely not the 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 physical, the runner, the quality cross that you need. Because as we, we said at the start, these are systems that prioritise the central parts of the pitch. Um, they'll often play with you know inverted wings or sort of number 10s, but you need fullbacks that are going to push on, that are going to go up and down for you sort of all game long and, um, you know, provide crosses, be almost a, a complete wide player on their own. And I think as soon as you sort of take one piece out of that, it's going to have a real knock-on effect where other teams who maybe play in a more balanced way and aren't so concentrated on one part of the pitch might be able to sort of work around. But I think this shows that you really have to get your recruitment right. Um, and without it, it's going to fall down in, in some serious, seriously bad ways. I think of, of Angelino when you talk about uh, left backs in this sort of system and um, how, how how good his output was for Leipzig for a period. I know he's he's no longer there out on loan, but just just keep going on Leeds, Liam, and in particular the the subtle or otherwise tweaks between how they played under Bielsa and how they played under Marsh. What things are are different between those two? I thought the possession drop-off was quite interesting from a fifty-six percent under Bielsa in, in the Prem to fifty percent um, under Marsh, which isn't a huge change but I think it's enough and it's more I think evidence of I watched them quite a bit in pre-season sort of in, in prep to to see how they would be because the whole promise was they were going from or Marsh was going from sorry a, sort of a, a bandage project as it was called to keep this team up you know to keep them afloat to then okay now we can make an identity that we want we're not just playing for results now we care a fair bit about performances and seen a fair bit of critique around in their latter games on the marshes before you got sacked that their XG was quite good I think particularly compared to the chances that they gave up but as I've spoken to, to John McKenzie at TIFO quite a lot who uh, is a Leeds fan and has, has done some analysis on sort of their game state and looked at the fact that they're good at creating chances when they were behind in games they weren't very good at nil-nil and maybe that's down to their style of when teams sit back more um, and they have more of the ball, they can sort of play those incisive passes, but it becomes quite a risky strategy at nil-nil because you're not just trying to sort of fundamentally work on retaining possession. And I think this is a comment that I had mentioned on, on a previous pod that Patrick Bamford said after the Forest game was that he needed more runners going beyond him. Um, you know, he was playing 1v2 the whole game against sort of a, a deep line Forest defence that, um, you know, he said, I fortunately today, I can find the answer to solve that, um, which I think is also probably quite a fair dig at his manager saying, you know, help me out here. And he's a player that I thought would thrive more under this style because I associate him and his best goals being running onto those three balls. Even in the championship, his his misses I saw a lot were from crosses. But when he had that um, explosive season first in the Premier League, I thought he was fantastic at doing that. So I think it's a real shame that he couldn't stay fully fit. Um, I know that that's then also on a manager and a team to solve. But um, yeah, I think had he been fully fit, we might be seeing a slightly different outcome. I think another one of the main things I think for that differs between Bielsa and Marsh was the the off ball style. So I think that we we know just how much Bielsa was wedded to a a man orientate, orientated orientated uh, press, and making sure that essentially they just shadow player for player um, off the ball. And, and Marsh and the RB style, I suppose, is very much ball orientated and making sure that you condense the space and hunt in packs essentially. And that's to to Liam's point about the. Well, with the four-two-two-two, having that width in the with the fullbacks of making sure that you go really central between the the width of the two penalty areas to make sure that you have when you when you generate chances with the ball, you have those same players in a condensed space to be able to hunt in packs and have that ball orientated press off the ball. So that's it's it's condensing the space, which may look like it's quite congested, but it's allowing that kind of chaos in central areas to allow you to press with that same intensity to get the ball high up. So. I think there's yeah there's the man orientated and the ball orientated and I think that um, Marsh is very and the RB style again is very much looking at pressing but winning the ball high. I think Bielsa is all about winning the ball with intensity, but Marsh and the the RB way was winning have a lot of high turnovers and using that to generate chances quickly. So, Michael, to what extent, based on what we've seen from from those two managers at those two Premier League clubs, can we say that this style itself? is potentially an issue or just a bad fit for Premier League football compared to the German Bundesliga, the Austrian Bundesliga, rather than just the execution of it was wrong. 
is there something inherent about this approach that to you just doesn't quite work or, or, or wouldn't be a great approach to a, trying to be the team that finishes eighth in the Premier League? Not necessarily. I mean, I don't think either of them really made the sides worse. They, they were quite flawed when they took over them, I think. So I don't think they proved disastrous. I mean, I think it's a more difficult league to manage in, in general. And yeah, in terms of the stylistic fit, I mean, German football just is, there's more space, it's more transitional. There's more sides kind of trying to play this way. And I do think in certain situations, yeah, it's difficult to play that style of football. I mean, again, you look at how Leeds uh, collapsed against Brentford in that game. I mentioned earlier, 5-2. Brentford don't play a style of football the way you can do that. You know, they're just going to be more direct. They're going to depend on set pieces. They're going to test your, you know, centre-back's capacity to win the ball in the air. And yeah, I don't watch that much Bundesliga, I must admit. But when I do, there is a quite a homogenous way of playing football, I think. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You talk about essentially not being able to engineer the situations that you want to engineer against, for example, Brentford. They just won't play ball. They won't dance with you in the way that you want them to dance with you, right? There are ways that you can try and engineer a, tr- a transition-based game or a chaotic game. And a, a team like Liverpool, for example, have, have done that fairly well over the years. But would you say that taking the opposite approach, which is we're going to be a, a possession-based team where we want to engineer situations where we are going to have and hold the ball and create from that, is that easier to yeah, reverse engineer than a heavy transition-based style? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think when you look at... There's another stat that's quite interesting, which is passes per sequence this year in the Premier League. And... Leeds and Southampton are in the group at the bottom with Forest, Brentford and Bournemouth. So they're not, they're just not holding on to the ball for that long. They're not always progressing up the pitch that well. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure I have an answer to that question. But um, I think a lot of these sides kind of lack something in possession, to be honest. I think it's definitely harder to train um, because the situations are probably a lot more unpredictable. And that's where your success comes is that if you can't predict it, well, then the opposition definitely can't. Um, I always appreciate teams that try and play in a slightly different way. I think it just comes back really to sort of the cycles of football that sort of wanting to have organised possession and controlled football uh, to play expansively and to, to press high has become the norm now in the Prem. Um, There's a Premier League article in the last season that showed just how much the numbers in terms of possession and sort of high turnovers across the league have skyrocketed. Um, and now you're going to see teams like Brentford have had great success in playing what is maybe quite an old-fashioned way, but re-engineered to be modern and, and quite savvy. Um, so I can see how this approach might naturally try to exploit some of the tendencies of, okay, a team that wants to you know stretch their players out and play expansively, keep high possession when they do lose the ball, well, there's going to be spaces to play a through ball through and exploit that really early. Uh, if they are going to play out, well, then you can go and press high. So I see the, uh, the approach, I don't think it's necessarily problematic. I think the execution is really hard to do because when it goes right, it's, it's perfect, it's amazing, it looks really good. You saw leaders win against Chelsea where they made goals off of errors and, and set pieces. But when it goes wrong, like Michael said, it, it goes disastrously wrong. I don't think you get anywhere in the middle um, and I think as football fans and football people we're bad enough at sort of dealing with the outcomes of success and failure and, and you just don't get that consistency I agree with that I think it's also about being multi-dimensional within the same style as well so I think Leeds is one of Leeds' downfall was that they just had one gear and they weren't even if they were ahead which they've been ahead for the fewest uh, number of minutes of any team in the, the Premier League this season but the point being that irrespective of the game state Leeds just kind of continue to have the same approach and sometimes you need to mix up your approach depending on whether you're ahead or behind or drawing sometimes realizing that you might need to hold on to the ball for a little bit longer or the uh, the opposition is going to try and think of a way to stop you doing what you want to do which is kind of what we've spoken about before so i think being able to have a different dimension a different attacking structure whatever it is i think is is key as well because as we mentioned before there's two ways that this approach can be maybe quite fallible and that's the teams playing long and you're trying to to win the ball high up. So if the team just gets it to the fullback and goes long, they've maybe skipped six of your players there and got it into forward areas and they might build from there. That's uh, one way that it's fallible. The other is that they can 
sit deep. And then the, the whole game that's based on transitions and the only way that you know how to play is completely undone. And then it's it's down to the possession style. So having if you also have that possession style and you say, well, okay, you want to sit deep, we can play it this way. You want to play a transition game, we can play it that way as well. There's not too many teams you can do that well, but I think just having one is where you can have a bit of a, an Achilles heel. And I think the one critique of Nathan Jones in that regard at Southampton was he tried to switch things too much. Uh, I know Michael's referenced the comments that he's made, but uh, Jacob Townswell, our, our Saints writer, has done some good pieces on this of how constantly in games he was switching between shapes um, as well as between different matches as well. Um, and just sort of, I get that that's difficult as a manager coming in during a season, but um, particularly without sort of a chance of window, but to be constantly switching, I think... I'm not sure they necessarily got all the quality and the versatility of players to play all these these different systems. The one great success of it was actually trying War Prowse in a role where he's further forward. I know he just keeps burying free kicks for fun, but I thought his second half performance at Everton where he, he gets the equaliser before he gets the winner, um, you know, there there were some good bits of it. Um, it it's not all sort of terrible and the, the numbers don't look great, but um, yeah, I think you can go the other way and this is a similar critique to what we had, I think, of Frank Lampard at Everton um, where, you know, you've not got a real sort of consistent, clear style for a, a team to be playing long from the goalkeeper now an awful lot more I think is also very interesting in modern football in terms of, sort of having a plan we sort of from a data side speak about teams can be really hard to work out what's deliberate and what's reactive um, but generally from a goalkeeper you can get quite a good idea of a game plan because often it's a goal kick or they have the ball in their hand so they can choose what they're going to do that's the one thing where you can go oh we can really see a, a game plan here so to constantly be kicking along I think is is rather telling a lot of this seems to come back to you know of all the different facets of the game out possession in possession style, moments of transition and, and how you cope with those, plus set pieces more broadly to, to boil the game down. It feels, Michael, like solutions in possession, attacking solutions, basically being a good attacking team, is where this has mostly fallen down in the Premier League when it comes to Southampton and Leeds. I think there's been periods where the pressing has broadly gone as they wanted it to. And, you know, it's a style that Generally, it's. I think I'm looking at you, Mark, to back me up, except in data terms, that if you have a really good and intense high press, generally these teams don't concede as many shots as teams that sit deep for obvious reasons, but the XG per shot, the quality of shot that you give up, again, for obvious reasons, is much higher, and that's the, the risk that you take. You just try and reduce those moments, and that's a good way of doing it. But it, for me, it, it feels like where Leeds and Southampton just really struggled and never quite got it right was in basically, yeah, attacking solutions to, to problems that defences pose them. Yeah, I think sometimes these managers basically just ignore that too much. And I'd extend that to, to Ranick at Manchester United as well. Um, I don't think they had any identity in possession. I don't know what, don't think they knew what they were doing a lot of the time. There was a quote from Ranick when he was talking about Cristiano Ronaldo, who I appreciate was a difficult player to manage and maybe didn't fit into the the tactical approach of, of whatever manager was there. I think we saw that with Ten Hag as well. But Ranick said about him, uh, with Cristiano, he's not a pressing monster. He's not a player, even when he was a young player, who was shouting, hooray, the other team has got the ball. Where can we win the ball? I, I don't want my attacker to be saying, hooray, the other team has the ball. I want my attacker to be saying, hooray, my team has got the ball. And, you know, this is a player who, albeit had limitations in his latter years, made a career of, if the, if a teammate gives him the ball, in a good position in the penalty box, he scores goals. Now, that's the idea of it. You know, but he, he's so obsessed with the other team having the ball and how can we win it? I think it's quite a reductive style of football, to be honest. And I think when you when you take it to that level, um, I think some of these games are just horrible to watch. I mean, I think pressing when it's done well can be obviously really useful, can actually be good to watch as well. And I like it when you get teams who are, you know, built from a possession perspective and they add the pressing later. So I think you would say that about Guardiola's Barcelona. You know, by the third season, everyone was talking about the pressing, but it wasn't really, you know, a major component of the first year. I've been writing about England's uh, women's side this week. I think for the Euros last year, they were very good in uh, possession. They had completely nailed that side of the game. And in the second year that Serena Wiegmans had been in charge, now you're really seeing the pressing and there's lots of talk about winning the ball high. But when you just have pressing and nothing else, when you actually win the ball, aside from trying to strike immediately, I think it's quite ugly football, to be honest. It's got to be quite a counterintuitive strategy as well, right? Because the better you get at pressing, the more you win the ball back and the less pressing you then do. But if you get better at being a possession team and you keep the ball more, then you're doing more of the thing you set out to do. So 
I don't know if that makes sense or that's just me that going overly philosophical in my own head. But um, no, I, I agree with Michael. I enjoy seeing a really well-engineered press, but I think, yeah, to have your whole style around it. And, and as Mark has, has said, teams, once you get a bit too good at it, you've got to almost start baiting it more because they will just go, okay, well, we're just going to start smashing it along now. So you're, you're more at the mercy of your opponents. Well, it's reductionist, but you just need to have the players who have the technical quality to actually implement it when you do win the ball back. And I think that was what was Southampton's and Leeds' downfall is that they didn't necessarily have that. And I think we've, we've spoken about Liverpool before of Gagan pressing and things before, but they also had Sadio Mane, who would be someone who would press relentlessly, but they also had Mane, Firmino and Salah. They were some of the best attacking players or have been for the, the past few years across Europe. So they have the technical quality to implement it as well. So to have just pressing as your mantra, which I'm not saying that that is the, the only way for, for RB style, but you just you certainly need players of the technical quality to implement both sides of the game. There was a really interesting statistic I found from a great book that I read called The Numbers Game, um, which I'd advise anyone to read. It's, it's a great nerdy book, but sort of tries to myth bust a lot of things. And the data is slightly old. I think this was published in about 2013 um, or so, but they found that teams lost 47.7% of games when they had more turnovers than the opponent. If they had fewer, they only lost 28.4% of the time. And to sort of. Is that a stronger correlation than possession which things, at that yeah time was... so it's up there with things like shots and you know the metrics you expect to largely correlate and be predictive of um, footballing success and i was fascinated really um i didn't really get an understanding of how you know how many more you needed to have if it's maybe one or two that doesn't feel like a huge difference if there's a hundred odd possession losses a game but um i guess you think every time you lose the ball that's an opportunity for a team to hit you in a counter attack which is way more valuable and i guess an attack that you've then failed to make anything from so i thought some some fascinating area of research really more broadly michael a very a style of play that is hinged on pressing athleticism intensity and challenges which has become a much larger part of the game uh, over the last decade or two i think it's fair to say in ryan o'hanlon's piece about the rb system you know, one of the points that he made was well, he said the constant running worked better with younger and therefore cheaper players. He said it also favoured a kind of physical strength and high-speed intelligence that was perhaps a little easier to scout for than the subtle technical skill or tight area decision-making that define the likes of the great Barcelona teams. Uh, I, I dare say you could extend that to slightly easier to, to coach and to implement than possession-based uh, systems, although I could be way off there. It, more broadly, the increased intensity of the game, the incredible lifting of the level of athleticism that we see particularly in the Premier League but also in, in the Champions League as well does does that improve or take away from the spectacle of a football match in your opinion as a neutral observer well I think when it's taken to the extreme it probably takes it away um, I don't want slow football matches but I do want the game to be able to breathe and I want the technical players who are not necessarily energetic to be able to impose themselves on the game that is down to them the best ones can do that I mean, Andrea Pirlo played against pressing and, and could be very good, but not everyone's as good as Andrea Pirlo. I do think some of these players at time, I mean, I'm really intrigued by Nabi Keita, who everyone went on about like he was going to be the greatest midfielder in the world when Liverpool signed him a year in advance. I've been really shocked at how bad his decision making is a lot of the time. I think his shooting is often just, I mean, it technically looks terrible. And okay, he does have, he has brought energy, he has brought pressing qualities, but even then not quite as much as I would have expected. So there's a few players who've come over from that system who, he's not a player I enjoy watching, Kaita. I, I, yeah, everything I'd heard about him was that he was going to be really exciting, but he, he doesn't really seem to have that many qualities to play midfield for a Premier League challenging side to me. And how much has it changed football, Michael, in your eyes? Yeah, I think it has. I think there's been an emphasis on on high-tempo football more than ever before. And I just think in general, it marks maybe quite a significant shift in terms of what football strategy and philosophy is all about. I mean, I, I wrote a book called Zonal Marking that takes seven different countries and looks at their footballing philosophy in turn. And that was how we used to talk about football philosophy. There was a Spanish way of playing, a Dutch way of playing, sometimes overlapped and influenced each other. But this is not just a multi-club model, which we're seeing more and more. I mean, you can use the same kind of thing to talk about the city group but it's a multi-club model that's really come like i said a top-down thing from a company who wants to project a certain image and to me that is a almost the next step of football's globalization i mean globalization in a political sense people used to talk about the shift from you know countries being the most powerful actors to companies being the most 
powerful actors. I think almost the same thing is kind of happening here. And I must say, I do slightly worry about, you know, from what I've said earlier in terms of it just taking over and energy and tempo and pressing almost overpowering good technical football and some of the innovations which I know I've I've complained about before but when you have bigger squads when you have more subs for example I mean I worry about where things are going what if you know the history of football you've gone from zero subs to one to two to three to five what's the next step if we get up to 11 subs if we get up to roll on roll off subs I mean it's just going to be about pressing it's going to be about very robotic players who can run and run and run just disrupt football and I think in general football's been quite good at finding the balance between physicality and and technical play and I think the balance now is basically fine it's not like how I mean I'm not a fan of this sport but the way people talk about rugby now they're just like everyone's a machine the technical players don't have room to breathe I don't think football's anywhere near that but I do think we have to be slightly careful with the balance and and yeah the rules and regulations have to um have to allow for for different styles of play. There's an interesting sort of uh, drip down, I suppose you could say, to academy level where in England are famously quite late sort of footballing trend. It's not purely something that's come about in the last couple of years, but sort of since the early 2010s when the FA brought out their sort of elite player performance plan, um, that physical testing is a real big thing now that people want to understand the physical profile of players, which I think is is sensible. There's obviously question marks over, or questions that need to be asked, sorry, over the tests that they administer uh, and how we can sort of correlate these to um, you know, relevant sort of footballing techniques or abilities. They're also very much a case at academy level where it's just trying to track a player's progress over time and evaluating that as players grow or they mature or they develop. Um, and because these are done at least at Premier League level and in, in academies, um, a lot of these tests are administered by the Premier League so they will then be able to give clubs a benchmark of say okay the average 13 year old this is in a chronological age um, can run this distance or pass this test at this time or can um, you know jump this this distance so it gives them standardisation um, and it's effective I guess to sort of track players it's a piece of the puzzle now in terms of we're going to better understand players in their physical sense because the capacity now and what they need to do um, across the board is going to be so much higher so I think that's a good level and I'll be now really intrigued to see in the next few years as we've spoken about before with sort of running data and um, the physical metrics how we can now integrate that to say okay well how is a player who's the fastest one at the club able to translate that speed onto the pitch what's the sort of tactical technical repercussions rather than just having a load of good 100 200 meter run this mm. sort of thing which clubs definitely don't do because they're getting incredibly smart now but i think now we've had these sort of separate different domains it's about bringing them together and saying how can they start to inform each other and i guess sort of um be cross evidence between each other i guess that would be at the academy level a part of of concerns about the future would be if the increased demands physically uh, on a player at the top level of football would mean that academies and the types of player that they prioritised and produced was starting to be skewed ever more towards just the the physically competent, the physically dominant. And of course, you know, in youth age groups, that's that's. I think there's probably an extent to which that's always been the case. Even even if you go and watch a school team, you know, broadly there'll be a player who's probably bigger and stronger and faster than the other players because he's developed quicker. Um, but interestingly, Liam, on this front. You know, I, I cover a lot of, of lower league football from the championship down to League Two. And one of the things that I would say is quite a regular uh, way that people within the game and coaches and managers talk about academy players and players who have just come out of academy systems has almost been the opposite in the last decade, which is they're too technical. The game is too safe for them. The way that academy football looks is is it's almost the opposite of what we're talking about. Is like clean and tidy and the point being it doesn't offer nearly enough practice or experience for what senior football might be like which to me seems like almost slightly different to what we're talking about and maybe it's a separate question to be honest but I, I thought I'd raise that because it's something that I've heard loads over the last few years. I think physicality can exist on sort of different levels. Um, you're looking at players who have really good sort of physical builds. Often I see players go out on load and be maybe faster over a foot race or maybe with slightly more endurance. But I think that's more in regards to their ability to maybe withstand contact or to duel early at academy level that the pitches have an experience them are fantastic. They're ludicrously good because, you know, they've got some of the best ground staff in the world that are curating these pitches. And it's maybe not quite the same um, when you drop down divisions into maybe less quality pitches and, you know, seeing some of the data that often these EFL teams 
are at least a little bit more direct or you know play more more pass in the air more crosses that it's a it's a different style of play and having done some research on this the academy level does tend to be more transitional more counter-attacking than the senior level where there's more organized play organized possession i guess that harks back to also academy players um you know are playing for contracts they want to they want to impress but also they've not got forty thousand people that are going to boo and scream at them if they misplace a 10-yard pass and concede it might just be a coach saying Nice try. Let's work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's definitely, yeah, that's something to adapt in. I'm intrigued to see where the game's going to go in that regard. I mean, it's a sample size of one and it's probably a general <laughs> point, but I went to um, the Liverpool versus Chelsea uh, game at the academy level, the under-23s, um, at the weekend just gone. And I did find myself having the same thoughts that you just mentioned, Ali, where it felt very formulaic and there were opportunities for certain maybe riskier passes, but it felt very kind of plug and play. This is what I should be doing. To Liam's point, that I want to impress my academy coach, so I want to be able to show that I can do these things. And there was kind of, again, only in my opinion from this game, there just didn't seem to be too much flair or technical quality on show rather than uh, in as much as just actually doing what you felt that you should have done within Mm. that moment working through the thirds but if there was the opportunity to play it to the wing or play maybe a slide rule pass then go and do it but it felt like it was a little bit too formulaic but that is probably more anecdotal that's quite interesting because the thing that sprung to my mind immediately was the chelsea man city league game a couple of weeks ago where chelsea were chasing the game and potter threw on some very young players many of whom hadn't played much senior football before um and you know i almost feel harsh saying it which is why i don't really want to name names but in sort of old school style, you want your attacking youngsters, you want the idea for them to be to come on, be unpredictable and be raw and maybe try things because they haven't, you know, they haven't had the excitement beaten out of them by the realities of senior football. But I remember watching the last 20 minutes and almost feeling a bit like what you've just mentioned, Mark, that the, these players looked a little bit scared to try things and, as you say, somewhat formulaic and taking the safe and easy option. And I don't really want to criticise them because I I would be absolutely terrified in that sort of scenario and, and I'm sure they are all excellent players but I, I felt that just watching that game so you bring that up made, made me think about that well it's been a really really interesting discussion thank you so much guys for for all of your thoughts on on what's been you know quite a wide-ranging and varied discussion you know broadly linked to the RB style of football but touching on quite a lot of different things so a massive thank you Michael um, Liam and Mark as well Michael three o'clock on Saturday we've got Leads against Southampton. Javi Grathier against Ruben Seles. Yeah, so they met earlier in this season uh, on the second weekend of the campaign. And obviously that was Marsh against Hasenhutl. And the interesting thing was that Leeds went 2-0 up and uh, Southampton pegged it back in the final 25 minutes. And that weekend, if you remember, it was, so for reference, it was the weekend where Brentford beat Manchester United 4-0. And it was really, really hot. Really, really hot. So there was a drinks break in the second half. And Hasenhutl used that to change system. He went from 4-2-3-1 to 4-4-2. And everyone was like, that was the key thing, the drinks break. So what were they having in the drinks break? I I don't think it was Red Bull. I think it was water. But yeah, you won't get a drinks break this weekend. Probably not. Um, Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, As you can see, we've got a, a good long leash from our bosses when it comes to what we can discuss, be it highly topical or more broad like this. Um, Let us know if there's anything in particular that springs to mind that you'd like us to cover on this podcast. You can get in touch with us uh, individually on Twitter, but also uh, by commenting on the podcast page on the Athletic app. Make sure that you have the Athletic app and that you're subscribed to it to read everything that these guys are writing and all of their colleagues as well. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the place to go to sign up today. You'll pay £1.99 a month for the first 12 months of your annual subscription. So join The Athletic today. And thank you for listening. Join us again next time on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.